would invite you to take your Bibles or your bulletins and turn with me to our passage that we'll be looking at during the sermon today, which is 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, there is a lot in here. A lot of food for God's people to chew on this morning. So we're going to jump right in. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the lands of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray together. Our Father, there is so much here in this passage, and we desire to understand it. I would pray that you would open our eyes to give us more than just an understanding of it. But that as we read this incredibly important passage, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would remind us that for Christ's sake, you are faithful to your covenant promises to your people. And as we meditate upon that incredible promise, that you would fill us with hope and encouragement and that you would send us out to be your people this week ahead. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For Christ's sake. I wonder what that means to you when you hear those words. I heard those words uh, recently 
in the locker room of the gym that I go to. Now, I didn't see the person that said it. I don't know the context around which that person said those words. But as I listened to those three little words come out of whoever it was mouth, I have to tell you that it seemed more like they were three words of expletive. Uh, It was used as a way of expressing exasperation and frustration, probably using the Lord name, the Lord Jesus's name in vain. I, I hope that when you hear those words for Christ's sake, that they are words that there are no sweeter words to your ears to hear. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. You hear that wonderful truth? For the sake of Jesus' name, God the Father forgives our sins. Because of what Jesus has done, for the sake of Jesus' work on the cross, we have Forgiveness, Or again, in Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It is for the sake of Christ. It is because we are in Christ that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We get forgiveness and righteousness for Christ's sake. There should be no sweeter words to our ears. There is a sense in which the overall message of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is for Christ's sake. Now those words don't actually appear in our text today. But the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth points us to Jesus. In fact, it points us to a prayer that every single Christian can pray. Our Father, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of His name and His work on the cross, forgive me of all of my sins. Be faithful to your covenant promises that you will never leave or forsake me. When we start to understand the significance of this chapter, it must drive us to love the Lord. It must drive us to honor our commitments to Him And it should also drive us to love others, to give ourselves in love and service to others. So what I want us to do today is just very simply look at two things from this passage. The first is the very real power that we see of this covenant relationship between David and Mephibosheth's family. And then secondly, to see the result of that covenant relationship. So first of all, the power of the covenant now, if you look at verse one, we read that David said, is there still any is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, to understand what's going on here, to understand the context, we need to understand the promise that was made between David and Jonathan, who was Mephibosheth's father. We have to go all the way back to 1 Samuel 18 through 20. would invite you to turn there maybe this afternoon and you can read those words. But let me just remind you uh, and summarize what's going on in that section of 1 Samuel. David had been anointed king by the Lord, but he was not yet on the throne. Saul was king. And Saul despised David because he knew that David had the anointing of the Lord and eventually David would ascend to the throne. 
But Saul's, one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, struck a very deep and genuine friendship with David, which made Saul even more jealous. We read that Jonathan loved David as a friend to such a degree that he even saved David's life when Saul was trying to kill him. And then we read that Jonathan and David made an agreement together. They made a covenant together. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And in verses 14 and following, we read, these are Jonathan's words as he's speaking and as this covenant relationship is being formed. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We read here about a promise, about a covenant that was made between David and Jonathan. That even though Jonathan would one day perish and David would become king, that David would show steadfast love, not just to Jonathan, but to Jonathan's house forever. If you know anything about the Hebrew language, you know that that word steadfast love, sometimes it's translated kindness, is the Hebrew word chesed. David, and now as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is now king. Saul and Jonathan are dead. The kingship of David has been established. The capital city of Jerusalem has been set up. David has now a royal palace from which he can rule. And the enemies of David have been subdued. And as we come to chapter 9, we are seeing David intending on being faithful to the promise that he made to Jonathan. And so, we read verses 1 through 3, that David inquired. They went to find out from a servant of the house of Saul, is there, is there any living relative of Jonathan? Is there, is there still someone from the house of Saul, the house of Jonathan, that I might show them the kindness of the Lord, David says. And they find somebody. They find a servant named Ziba. And Ziba comes and, they tell, and he tells the king that indeed, there is still a son of Jonathan. But there's a problem. Actually, there are several problems. We read several problems with this son of Jonathan. The first we read at the end of verse 3. As Ziba announces that indeed there is an heir, there is still a descendant of Jonathan whom David can talk to, we read at the end of verse 3 that he is crippled in his feet. And we see that uh, mentioned again at the end of verse 13, as if to bracket the whole section, uh, to heighten its importance, uh, we're told at the end of the, of the chapter, now he was lame in both his feet. Now, you may remember that we actually heard about this happening back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Back then, the word had arrived to Saul and Jonathan's homes that both Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, had been killed on Mount Gilboa. And Jonathan had a five-year-old son at that time. And his son, named Mephibosheth, would have been in great danger. And so a nurse took the five-year-old son and began to flee with him. 
And we read in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel that in haste, Mephibosheth fell. And we don't know what happened. Uh, We don't know exactly the circumstances of it. But he was injured in both of his legs. The Bible simply tells us that he was lame, that he was crippled, that he was unable to walk. Now, if you know anything about the culture in which they were living, having a disability like this defined you. In fact, Mephibosheth is never mentioned from that point on in the Bible unless it also is accompanied with this little phrase that he was lame in both legs or that he was crippled in both legs. In that culture, having a disability like this made you an undesirable person, a vulnerable person. In fact, if you look at verse 8, notice what Mephibosheth thinks of himself. As he stands before the king, what does he call himself? A dead dog. You can imagine that Mephibosheth has probably heard that all of his life. That's how the culture treated him. That's what they thought of him. And that's what he thought of himself. In fact, did you notice in the first several verses of the chapter, his name isn't even mentioned. When the servant comes to tell David that indeed there is a son of Jonathan, that's all that he calls him, a son of Jonathan. He doesn't even name him. He doesn't even give his name. And we don't get his name until a little bit later in the passage. He's a nobody. Now, thanks be to God that God doesn't view Mephibosheth or any of us with disabilities that way. But there was another problem with Mephibosheth. It wasn't just that he was unable to walk and that he had been injured in his legs. He's also the grandson of Saul. Saul, who was the arch enemy of David. And because he was the, 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 the grandson of Saul, he would have had a great inheritance. But what we read here is that he had lost that inheritance. Look in verse 4. We're told that he was living in a place called Lodabar, as is the case with Hebrew names and places often. They mean something. And Lodabar in Hebrew means no pasture. It's a description of what this place was like. It was, a, it was a fruitless place. It was a barren land. It was a place of no consequence. It was almost as if Mephibosheth was in exile. Here he was, a person of no importance in that culture, and he was living in a place of no consequence. But there's a third problem as well. He was a threat to David. He was the last living heir to the throne of his grandfather, Saul, the arch enemy of David. He was he was of the rival family of King David. And normally in those cultures, when a new king would rise to his throne, he would take out the family from the previous king. That way there would be no challenge to the throne if some heir would come later. The entire family would be would be purged, would be killed off. And so you can imagine what Mephibosheth must have thought as word came to him in Lodabar that the king wants to see you. He's called to the, to the royal palace. He must have been filled with fear. And that's what we read in verse 6. As he comes face to face with King David, he fell on his face. There he is on the ground, his face to the ground, probably waiting and expecting that a sword would come down on him at any moment. That's what he would have expected. Mephibosheth had some problems. But even as we see the problems, we also see God providing an incredible provision. 
He was afraid. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was afraid. But how did David respond? Look again at verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Why? For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I want you to notice, first of all, they named him. He called out his name. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And he tells him, you have no reason to fear. As he's cowering before King David, expecting to be executed, David says to him, you have no reason to fear because I'm going to show you what? Kindness. It's the same Hebrew word, chesed. I'm going to show you steadfast love. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. That word hesed there that's translated kindness, probably better translated steadfast love. It means a devoted, steadfast love that is promised within a covenant relationship. It's a word that is used to describe God's love for God's people. David was referencing back to the covenant that he had made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. He had promised to, to extend steadfast love, kindness, chesed, not just to Jonathan, but to Jonathan's house, which would include Mephibosheth. And so he tells them that for the sake of your father, for, for Jonathan's sake, for the sake of the covenant that I have made with him, you have no need to fear Mephibosheth. Although he was expecting death, he got kindness instead. Now I want you to notice, not only did David remove any fear for Mephibosheth, but notice what else David provided at the end of verse three, at the end of verse seven, excuse me. He tells him, "You shall eat at my table always." He took Mephibosheth, who was on the ground before him, and he raises him up off the ground and he says, Your face is not to be on the ground. You are to be seated at the king's table. In fact, we read in the passage that he would be seated at the king's table like one of the king's sons. The picture we have here is of Mephibosheth being adopted into the king's family. It's a picture of adoption. Literally taking him into his own home. And it's even more than that. In verse 7, he goes on and says, And I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. He would restore Mephibosheth's inheritance as the grandson of King Saul. No longer would he live in no pasture. No longer would he live in, in Lodabar. He would now have his own land. And David goes so far as to say in verses 9 through 13, he instructs the servant, uh, Ziba, Saul's servant, that the entire household of Ziba, which apparently was quite large, would be responsible for serving Mephibosheth and his family to make sure that he was always cared for and provided for and never had any needs. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you see the power of the covenant for this, for this man, Mephibosheth, you can start to understand how powerful it is for you. Before we can understand the source of great encouragement that this passage should be for us, we need to see that we have a problem too. We're like Mephibosheth. 
We too have been born with royal blood. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, given that royal responsibility in the Garden of Eden. And we too, like Mephibosheth, had events shape our lives that took place without our participation as Adam and Eve represented us in the garden and fell in sin. Just as Mephibosheth lived in a barren land as if in exile, we too have fled from the face of God and have lost our inheritance. Just like Mephibosheth, who lived in low Debar, a place of no pasture, we live in a land that is infested with thorns. Just as Mephibosheth was the potential enemy of King David, we are the enemies of the Lord God Almighty, as Paul said in Romans 5. Just as Mephibosheth was powerless to help himself, so we are helpless before the Lord God Almighty. And just as Mephibosheth, we are at complete and utter mercy of our King. That without mercy, we have every reason to be cowering in fear before our King. But as we recognize that we are like Mephibosheth, that we too have a problem, we also, like Mephibosheth, hear the promise of our King. God made a promise in Adam, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. A promise that although they had disobeyed God, although they had not been faithful to, God's prom- to their promise to God, God would, be promise, God would be faithful to His promise to them. He would provide a Redeemer. That's the promise that He gave them in Genesis 3. And that as we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God explained what that promise would be like. That it would be through a Redeemer that He would be their God and, you, and they would be His people. He explained throughout the Old Testament that He would have chesed toward His people. He would have a steadfast, faithful, and never-ending love. That even though Adam and Eve had broken the covenant relationship with the Lord, the Father would make a, a covenant with their Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would love and redeem His people. It's the promise that we heard in Second Samuel chapter 7, a Redeemer who would come from David's own line to sit on the throne forever. This is the promise that God made to His people. And we know that it is a promise that has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the provision of the promise. Isn't that the point of Romans 5 that we read earlier? We read that God shows His, what? His love, His hesed, His steadfast love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, The Lord, as it were, takes our face from on the floor and lifts us up and calls us by name. He knows us. And the Lord says to us, you do not need to fear, for I am going to show you the kindness of the Lord. I'm going to show you my steadfast love. And the Lord seats us at His table and says that we will eat from His table forever as He adopts us into His family. And He gives us a spiritual inheritance which the Apostle Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. And then on top of it all, the Lord sends the Holy Spirit to provide and to protect and to serve us so that we will have everything that we need. Here is where those three little words take on such an important meaning. For Christ's sake. 
as David loved Mephibosheth and adopted him into the royal family, providing for him for the sake of the covenant that he made with Jonathan. So too God the Father puts his steadfast love on us and adopts us into his family and cares and provides for us for the sake of Jesus. For the sake of the faithfulness to the covenant that was made between God the Father and God the Son. It is for Christ's sake that we have the steadfast love of the Lord. Now as we start to understand the power of the covenant, not just for Mephibosheth, but also for us, then we can begin to consider the results. Can you imagine how Mephibosheth's life changed? In an instant, in an instant, he went from being exiled and afraid for his life and impoverished to being the adopted son of King David. We read that in verse 12, that it was Mephibosheth and even his own son that were taken in under the king's house and given love and protection. Now, we'll see later in 2 Samuel that Mephibosheth didn't always respond to that incredible gift of grace as as he should. But we can understand that when a man like that hears and experiences that, it should have revolutionized his life. And so it helps us, as we finish looking at this passage this morning, to consider what what result of all of this is there for us. The covenant between David and Jonathan. David's faithfulness, showing steadfast love to Mephibosheth. You had to imagine that would have melted his heart as he heard those truths. How much more so for us? Because this story points us to the greater covenant between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And we see Jesus' faithfulness in showing steadfast love. So how much more so should it melt our hearts as God's people? In response, we ought to be showing our love, our steadfast love, our chesed to the Lord. We ought to be living like who we are. As children of King Jesus. And one of the ways that we can do that is by being faithful to the covenant promises that we make in life. So what are those covenant promises that we make in life? Well, we saw one demonstrated earlier in our service today. Covenant vows that are taken in baptism. And maybe you're here as a parent who's, who's been up in the front of this church and you've taken those vows before. And as you hear uh, the wonder of God's steadfast love to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, that for Christ's sake, he, he loves you and he, he gives you his steadfast love. It should motivate you and empower you to fulfill those vows you've taken as a parent for your children. For us as a congregation, as we think about the vow we take to come alongside of the families of our church, uh, to help and assist and encourage and pray for it and to love on them. As we think about God's steadfast love to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, it should move us to want to be faithful to that vow. And for all of us who have been baptized, it should move us to want to improve on our baptism. That's one of the covenant promises we've made. Another covenant promise perhaps you've made is becoming a member of this church or another church. You made promises when you did that. A promise that you would endeavor to live as a, as a follower of Jesus. A promise to support the church in its work and its worship. 
a promise to pursue the peace of the church and the purity of the church. As you hear of God's steadfast love to you because of Jesus Christ, it should cause you to be motivated and, 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 and empowered to go out and to fulfill those vows that you've made. If you're an elder or deacon of this church, you've also taken vows. You've taken vows to uphold the scriptures as the ultimate authority for our faith and practice of this church. To submit yourselves to the Westminster standards as a faithful explanation of what the Bible teaches. You've promised to faithfully perform your duties of an elder or deacon, including modeling that and what it looks like in the, in the life of the church. You've promised to work for the purity and the peace and the unity and the brotherly love of our church family. And as you are reminded of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise, that because of Jesus, you have the steadfast love, the hesed of God over you. It should melt your heart and empower you and strengthen you and motivate you to fulfill your covenant promises as an elder or deacon. And for those of you that are married... You also made covenant promises, a promise to be faithful, to be loving, to be a devoted spouse, that you would do so in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, until death parts you. That a promise that you would be faithful and committed even when it's difficult. Even when you don't feel like you're getting the love and response that you feel like you deserve. And when you hear about God's covenant love, His, His faithfulness to His covenant promises, His steadfast love over you for the sake of Jesus, it should melt your heart and empower you and motivate you and strengthen you to be faithful to your promise, even in your marriage. So these are some of the ways that we can show our love to our Lord by being faithful to our covenant promises that we've made to Him because of what He's done for us. But we also ought to be showing covenant love, hesed, steadfast love toward others. Notice David demonstrated for us a commitment and a love towards someone who was his potential enemy. Someone who had been cast aside by society. Someone who was in need. Someone who couldn't give back to him anything. And he did it all because of a commitment to faithfulness to a promise that he made to his father. So how much more so for us, brothers and sisters in Christ? We are responding not just to a, a promise that has been made to another individual, but the promise of the almighty God that has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We ought to be ready to extend that love to one another. Some of you may, may know the name B.B. Warfield. Dr. Warfield lived in the mid-19th and early 20th centuries. He's probably best known as being a professor and, and, and principal of Princeton Seminary. He also was a prolific writer, wrote a systematic theology book that is used in many of our circles. But very few people know the story of Dr. Warfield's marriage. In 1876 and 1877, Dr. Warfield was pursuing a theology degree in Germany. It was also recently after he and his wife, Annie, had been married. And so it was also serving not just as a time for him to get a degree, but also as a, a sort of honeymoon for he and Annie. The story's told that on one afternoon they went on a hiking excursion in the Harz Mountains in the northern part of Germany. And while they were out hiking, they got caught in one of those really 
horrific, terrifying thunderstorms. You know the kind where the thunder is so loud that you can't even think. The lightning is so intense that it feels like you're going to get zapped at any moment. This kind of a storm came over Dr. and and Mrs. Warfield as they were out hiking without any kind of shelter. And they endured it. And it's said that Annie really basically never recovered from it. She became essentially an invalid for the rest of her life. Dr. Warfield never left her side for more than two hours at a time, even while he was a professor and president of the seminary for 39 years. It's said that one of the students actually saw Dr. and Mrs. Warfield out walking one day, and he said that the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. Has God's steadfast love impacted you like that? Such that you are ready and willing to show steadfast love to others. What about to others who can't give you anything back in return? Those who are in need. Those who are, who are thought of as unimportant or, or, or discarded by our society and our, and our culture. If you truly understand God's chesed towards you, His steadfast love towards you, how can you not be looking to share it with others? One last application. Don't turn down the invitation to come to God's table. Can you imagine Mephibosheth hearing from King David? There he was in Lodabar impoverished, in a land of no consequence, a person of no significance in that culture. Can you imagine him getting the summons to come to the king, of being brought into the king's family, of being adopted into the king's family, of having not just a place to eat, but provision and and, and love and protection. And, And he's saying to the king, thanks but no thanks. I'm going to stay and load the bar. King Jesus extends an invitation today. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's an invitation that you would understand your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would put your hope in Him. That you would put your trust in Him. That you would put your faith in Him. That you would be in a relationship with Him. That you would receive His steadfast love. And what awaits for those who do far outweighs the incredible benefits that Mephibosheth experienced at David's table. So don't respond to the king's invitation by saying, thanks. But no thanks. Let's pray together. Father, as is the case always with your word, it is so deep and broad. We're we're simply skimming the surface of it this morning. But I pray that you would put upon the hearts and minds of all of these people a desire to dig deeper into the wonders of not just this passage, but your promises throughout the scriptures. 
I pray, Father, that you, through the work of your Spirit, would help us to have an ever-increasing understanding of your covenant faithfulness to the promises that you've made that stretch all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We thank you for the provision of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is for Christ's sake that you put your steadfast love upon us, that you adopt us into your family, that you know our name, that you protect us and keep us. And I pray that that would so impact our minds and our hearts that we would be ready and willing and eager to show you love in the covenant promises we've made and to show steadfast love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.